Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Learn about Hamilton's home building efforts and how we can build more rental units. Waiting for a surgery in this province can prove deadly. The Grey Cup Festival plans look pretty cool, and I'm going to help you in your back-to-school shopping. The GMH podcast begins now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. It's very clear that we have plans that will fulfill our obligations to 2051 uh, in terms of housing needs. We have to do that work, but we can do it within the existing envelope. We don't need the green land. That is uh, Hamilton Mayor Andrew Horvath talking about uh, the Greenbelt land and asking the province to back away from building homes on local Greenbelt lands. Now, we're not going to focus on that in this segment. We've talked enough, I think, about the Greenbelt, but what we have not really talked about is w- what is Hamilton's home building plan? There's been a lot of talk about we, we need to build more homes because we have a housing crisis. But what is the plan? What is the city doing to get more homes built? Alan Shaw is the chief building official with the city of Hamilton and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Alan, good morning. Thanks for waking up with us today. Thanks, Rick. Good morning. We know that Ontario has a goal of one and a half million homes in the next 10 years. What does Hamilton share in that? The uh, goal for Hamilton is 47,000 by, uh, by the end of the goal. And so how are we doing in that regard? Are we already on track? Is there is there a lot of pressure to hit that number, whether it's annual or cumulative? Where are we at? Well, the city has committed to making that goal. Uh, currently, we are seeing uh, a gear up, I guess, in regards to the numbers. We're currently running at a five-year average. So our numbers for 2023 are similar to those through uh, the last five years. Uh, we will have to increase those numbers uh, to get to meet the goal, but we are working towards that. So on average, how many homes are built in the city, and, and what is the increase that we have to see? So on average, over the last five years, we've seen approximately 3,000 units created uh, annually. Uh, to meet the goals, we're going to have to ramp that up to about uh, five to 6,000 per year. Okay, so almost double. Is it doable? I think it is doable. Uh, we are committed to doing it. Uh, we have uh, the planning department is working hard on uh, making land available. At the last uh, planning meeting uh, of council, the committee of council, uh, over 1,600 units were approved for future development. So I think I think it's a case where you turn you, you can't turn on the tap and expect buckets to be full right away. Mm-hmm. We have to gear up in regards to meeting those those uh, numbers. Well, and part of the issue here, I mean, one amongst many, is that uh, the skilled labor force, we know there is a bit of a shortage, or at least a lot a lot bigger shortage now than there were years ago. What kind of impact is that having on home building here in this city? Well, I think everybody in, in the industry is feeling the pinch in regards to skilled trades. Um, the uh, the fact is, is that in order to increase those numbers, you have to have the people, the bodies behind it. Uh, in the city ourselves, we are actually having, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to gear up and hire more qualified staff to do plans review and, and issue permits. I know on on, this, on construction sites, it's the skilled labor. So I think we're all in the same boat. Uh, we are gearing up. We are looking to hire more people. We are getting more people trained and, and certified. Uh, so that's that's part of the, the answer. Alan Shaw is the chief building official with the city of Hamilton, joining us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. As we talk about home building in this community, you kind of referenced, uh, you know, more people to handle permits. Uh, the red tape is a big complaint when I've, I've talked to a lot of developers and they say, you know, we get we have our plans into the city, but it takes months and sometimes it takes a few years to get their plan put in place. Uh, what kind of work is happening in that regard? 
So we are looking at our, uh, on the building side, we are looking at our customer service uh, model. Uh, we are trying to streamline uh, the application process. Uh, we're actually really taking a close look at what's coming in because uh, the more accurate and the more complete applications come in, the quicker they can be processed. What tends to make delays is where we, we, we have to do checks and balances in regards to other uh, approvals, such as conservation, planning, and so on. And where those are dealt with previous to coming in for permit, we can expedite the permits. It, it, are there too many rules and regulations? Should, should this be simplified, or do we need these? I think there's a, there's a balance that has to be struck. Um, obviously, we have to protect the consumer, the purchaser of the unit. Uh, nobody would want to have a rubber-stamped uh, plans uh, or construction permits for units that they're buying. Uh, but at the same time, I think we can do a better job in regards to streamlining, and the city's committed to taking a look at that, how we can streamline that process. As we plan for the future and building these thousands of homes over the next at least 10 years, where are the biggest opportunities in the city? Where are we going to see some growth? Currently, and I think in the future, we're going to have to look at the multi-residential. Um, over 50% of our housing stock comes from uh, condos and apartment buildings. Uh, I think that's a big, uh, a big uh, situation where we have to take a look at that and uh, try to maximize that. Uh, and encourage development of those type of units. Being the chief building official, knowing the pressure that uh, I'm sure you're under to get more homes built, do you feel that pressure? Do you thrive on it? Is this an exciting time because, you know, things are happening? How do you feel? I think it's a very exciting time. I mean, we've, we've seen record numbers in regards to uh, permits coming in. We hit the $1 billion in construction value uh, the earliest time ever this year, and we're projecting to, to uh, exceed $2 billion this, this year. Um, I think it's 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 very exciting in the fact that people are committed and uh, and uh, investing in the area. Um, obviously, a lot of those job uh, projects are related to industrial pr- projects, which brings jobs, and in turn, the jobs bring people, which uh, obviously would then increase the housing demand. Well, it is uh, certainly a concerning time for many in terms of trying to get into a housing unit, but uh, they can be rest assured that Alan, you and the team at the City of Hamilton are uh, striving to build as many homes as possible, and uh, we support you in that way. And good luck in the future. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Rick. Alan Shaw is the chief building official with this City of Hamilton. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We know we have a housing crisis in this city, really across the country. We need a lot more homes. And a big part of that is that we also need a lot more rental units. That's partly why we have a housing crunch, because we also have a rental crunch in this country. The the average cost of a two-bedroom apartment in Hamilton was just under $2,300 a month in June. That's up $247 from last year at this time. And a one-bedroom unit in this city in June was $1,855. That's up $161 from June of 2022. By the way, Vancouver's Rental costs are the highest in Canada. Not surprisingly, because their housing costs are also high. But the average one bedroom in Vancouver, the one bedroom is 3000 bucks a month. Wow. So there is a new report and a new initiative that has just been released. It's called the National Housing Accord, a multi-sector approach to ending Canada's rental housing crisis. And it is providing a roadmap, a blueprint for the federal government to build a lot more 
rental units. In fact, two million of them. Dr. Mike Moffitt is the founding director of the Play Center at Smart Prosperity Institute and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Dr. Moffitt, good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Uh, Let's dive into the formation of this report because you had an endless number of stakeholders providing input on, on what this should look like. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I would uh, say in the media sort of a year ago or so, I kept saying, like, you know what needs to happen? That we need to just lock a lot of really smart people in a room and uh, not let them out until this is uh, fixed. Then it eventually occurred to us that we should be those people. So uh, three of us got together, uh, myself, uh, Michael Brooks from RealPack, which is a group of apartment builders and investors and owners and financers, and Tim Richter from the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness. And we brought together a Number of stakeholders, uh, builders and developers on one side, and uh, social groups on the other side, and tried to figure out how to fix this mess. What are the things that we could all agree on? And out of that uh, process came this report. So it has wide support that this is not social sector led or industry led, but it's all of us coming together and trying to find a, a solution to this crisis. So, what are some of the highlights? How do we get to those two million purpose built rental units in this country? Well, there's a couple things that we need to do that first, we need more social housing in, in this country. So we have some plans, uh, an acquisition fund and a building fund that the federal government could uh, come up with that wouldn't, uh, if designed correctly, wouldn't see significant increases to the deficit and debt. Uh, but we know that the private sector is going to need to build more. So that's uh, a workforce development plan to uh, get more uh, people into the trades. We also know that there's a lot of projects, great apartment building projects that have already been designed, but just we can't get them over the line. Sometimes the issue is, is just that the economics don't make sense right now with the interest rates so high. We can address that through uh, financing programs at the CMHC. Uh, we could eliminate the GST and HST on purpose-built rental apartment construction. Uh, back in the 1960s and 1970s, there were generous tax incentives uh, to accelerate uh, the building of apartments. And that was one of the last times we had a housing crisis in, the, in this country. So we could do that again. So there are all of these things that we could do uh, to get these projects over the line, start getting shovels in the ground and uh, get some uh, affordable and attainable apartment units built. One of the biggest stumbling blocks is the amount of red tape at the municipal level. Um, And it's not necessarily because people aren't doing their jobs. It's just there's so much to deal with. And especially when you're building new, all the codes you have to abide by, there's a lot of time that elapses between, you know, pulling those permits and actually shovels in the ground and units being created. How do we how do we make that much more efficient? Well, we can certainly do that, and the federal government has levers to do that. They're they're trying to do that with the uh, the housing accelerator funds, uh, helping municipalities digitize some of those those processes to speed up the pro- uh, process. But we shouldn't overlook that a lot of those uh, delays are actually at the federal level. So, for instance, there's over a couple thousand uh, apartment units. Uh, that have been pr- proposed that are waiting with the CMHC to get uh, insurance, um, that we have a nine to 12 month backlog or more uh, for, for all of these great projects, both both private sector and social housing, uh, to obtain CMHC insurance. So we need the federal government to invest more, get people in there the same way that they address the, the back 
backlog of passport applications, they can address the backlog of apartment building insurance applications. So where do we go from here? I know there's a number of recommendations this report makes. Is this being presented to the government, to a, to a government committee? What, what are some of the next steps? Yeah, so we've uh, already presented uh, this to the government as well as the opposition parties that that we feel it's uh, important to get broad uh, partisan support on this. So we're we're trying to do uh, what we can to uh, build the momentum to get uh, the federal government uh, to work with other orders of government and industry and the social sector to start implementing some of these recommendations. And we're encouraging other groups to uh, go to nationalhousingaccord.ca. And uh, if you like the plan, we uh, love your endorsement. All the support we could get uh, would certainly help address this crisis. And there's a lot of great ideas and things that must happen. Let's uh, let's get the ball rolling on this. Dr. Moffitt, thank you for your time today, and thanks for spearheading this initiative. It's awesome. Oh, thank you for having me. Dr. Mike Moffitt is the founding director of the Place Center at the Smart Prosperity Institutes. And as he mentioned the website, check it out, nationalhousingaccord.ca. Let's hope that government officials, those that you know, holds uh, the decision-making process, take some or all of these recommendations and say, all right, let's make some improvements here. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. So this is disturbing. It's it's a new report from secondstreet.org, and it shows that the number of people in Ontario who died while waiting for a diagnostic scan or surgery has increased again. And Second Street has been researching these wait list deaths across Canada since 2020, and the numbers are going in the wrong way. Colin Craig is the president of SecondStreet.org and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Uh, the latest report, give us some of the stats that you have uncovered. Yeah, so we've got two main bunches of uh, stats, Rick. The first looks at the number of patients who died while waiting for surgery in Ontario, and we've been gathering that data for a number of years now, and we can what we can see is that uh, between last year and this year, there's an increase of about 50%. So these are patients that are waiting for surgery, and then they pass away. And and just to be clear to your listeners, these are all kinds of different surgeries, everything from waiting for cataract surgery to cardiac surgery. So you're you're probably not going to pass away because you don't receive your uh, cataract surgery in time, but it certainly can affect your quality of life. And then on the other hand, I mean, there could be cases where someone is passing away because they're not receiving life-saving treatment in time. So that was the first uh, set of data, and uh, it was about 2,096 cases last year where people passed away waiting for surgery. The other looks at, um, at patients passing away while waiting for diagnostic scans, so things like MRIs and CT scans. And we've seen a, a much more clear trend there over the last eight years. It just keeps going up and up and up, the number of patients who passed away while waiting for those uh, procedures. So. It's uh, definitely concerning. Last year was about 9,404, and that's up significantly from 2015 when it was uh, a little over 1,000. So these numbers are are definitely concerning. And, you know, I think one big takeaway for your listeners is that uh, they clearly show that, uh, you know, healthcare was in a crisis uh, prior to COVID. COVID exacerbated the numbers, but these numbers were, were climbing beforehand. And uh, it's a problem that we're seeing right across Canada, across the country. We we got a couple more minutes, but I'm going to ask you this. You know, we uh, healthcare funding has been in the news for it seems like forever. We know that the provinces are getting a little bit more money from the federal government in those health transfer payments. We c- continue to spend billions of dollars on healthcare, yet we're getting worse outcomes in this regard. What is the disconnect? 
You know, it, it boils down to this. We have a lot of good nurses and doctors that work in the healthcare system. I think everyone knows someone or they've had a positive experience where they could tell that the staff are trying and doing their best. There's a lot of money in the system too. The, the problem is that it's a broken system. So you're not going to get the results that you need, and this is why we need reform. So, you know, we've seen some positive uh, developments in Ontario. They're starting to do what uh, Saskatchewan, Sweden, other jurisdictions have done to reduce their wait times, and that is to partner with private clinics so that uh, they can uh, help get procedures done more quickly and get more done. So that's a positive sign, but uh, if, if we're going to see these numbers go in the opposite direction, it would, would also help if the Ontario government pursued additional health reform uh, measures. The problem and the pushback regarding the, the pay for health is that, you know, some people who can't pay for that health get left behind. That's got to be concerning. Well, that, that's not the experience in other countries. So we need to, and this is a concern that some raise, but we need to ask the question, well, why is it that Sweden can figure that out? Why is it that France can do it and Australia and, and countries all over the world that have universal healthcare systems similar to Canada's? They're getting better results, and they do give patients a choice between using the public system or using private alternatives. So they have found a way to figure it out. We certainly can too. Um, but you know, again, it, it's more than just that. We need multiple health reform measures. And what's interesting is public opinion results that we've uh, procured through Leger show that the public's on board with trying out reform. I think Canadians overwhelmingly understand the system's broken. We need to try new things. Uh, we've seen a lag in terms of the political response. And so it would certainly help if we start to see more health reform measures uh, in this country because it can ultimately help patients and improve their lives and in some cases save lives. Uh, yeah, there's no doubt about that. This is this is a giant onion with a lot of layers, and to get to that core, we, we gotta we gotta change some things because it it's obviously not working for the nine thousand people in your report that died while waiting for some kind of procedure. Colin, we'll have to leave it there. Really appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Rick. Colin Craig is the president of SecondStreet.org. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We did get a ton of details to. Uh, really get us excited about the 2023 Grey Cup Festival. So in the week leading up to the big game on November 19th, uh, there's a there's going to be a ton of things to see and do and experience the joy of Grey Cup week. And here to talk about it is Bob Young. I had a chance to chat with him yesterday after the announcement at the Art Gallery of Hamilton. We had a great discussion that you're about to hear now. So let's uh, get to uh, what Bob had to say about the upcoming Grey Cup Festival. Grey Cup 110 is going to be bigger and better. Those are your words. Yep. And I, I think I would agree with that because we've seen the plans. They're absolutely exciting. What sticks out in your mind on what is going to take this Grey Cup to the next level? Uh, it's really the, the support of the province and the city uh, is really getting behind showing off our city to the country, arguably to the world. Uh, so yeah, it, it, Matt Afnick did a, a great job presenting the idea that this is a very compact festival. Everything is incredibly walkable. It, it's, uh, you know, sort of two blocks from the James Street uh, to the Armory to the First, Can First Ontario Place. Uh, and... Um, yeah, it, it just it's going to be a party for a solid week and, and more to be announced in the next few weeks. We'll get to some of the more. I know you can't share a lot of the details, but one of the added wrinkles that I found very exciting and, and interesting was Niagara Falls, pulling them into the mix with free shuttle service, um, offering the CFL awards to be hosted at Falls View Casino. How did those conversations go? 
uh, it's the joke I often told, but it's fun to see the province and the city embrace the idea of the greater Hamilton area. To hell with the GTA thing. <laughs> this is the greater Hamilton area. Uh, and so the idea that there are resources in Niagara Falls or in London, Ontario or in Brantford that we should be partnering with makes perfect sense. And, and so it's exciting that that project came together uh, to the point where we can do player awards in a bigger and better way thanks to the contribution of Niagara Falls. We have a lot of exciting announcements to be uh, to be made, including the halftime show, which I know you can't get into. But I do want to touch on the Canadian of the Grey Cup and, and yeah. seeing so many fans here in Hamilton. We had a bit of a trial run a couple of years ago. Yeah. COVID kind of muted that. Yeah. Was that a blessing in disguise in terms of you know, getting some of the, the quirks out of the way that you would normally find with, with a new stadium? You've never done it at Tim Hortons Field before. That's a really good point. It probably was because a bit of a dress rehearsal. We had been gearing up to do a lot of this, what we're doing in 23, in 21, and we weren't allowed to do it because of COVID. But we also got an insight into what not to do. So some of the good ideas we might have rolled out in 21, we're not doing because we can do bigger and better things uh, with the resources available to us. Uh, but it also has given us more years of planning, more opportunity to work with the province and the city to get them behind what we're doing. Uh, so yeah, uh, 21 and, and the fact that it was, you know, we had to give it back to the, uh, to the league to run because it was such a limited project. Uh, that being able to do this properly is, is uh, it's benefited from that trial one in 21. I know hosting the Grey Cup is a big financial windfall for any franchise, obviously, yep. Yep. but it's also about giving back to the fans too. And the way you're doing it, it seems like you're trying to raise that bar as high as it's ever been. Does this set a new precedent for Grey Cup festivals and, and the game itself? So yeah, it, it's a key point of, of why I'm in business at all. Uh, because I really like business. And what I like about it is, is the only way you're successful in business is to make your customers successful. And in a Grey Cup festival, our customer is the community that we're in. It is the country. And we can't run a successful festival if we don't create a huge amount of value and if the YWCA doesn't succeed, and if the Round the Bay Race doesn't succeed, and if all the other partners that we've had the pleasure of roping into this project, if they don't get as, as much, if not more, value out of this event than we do, it, it won't be successful. So it, it's not that we're being nice to anyone. It's we need everyone to help us with this thing. That's a good point. Uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about on-the-field stuff, and I know it hasn't been uh, the greatest start in terms of wins and losses, but this team is very much into the mix. What what have you seen on the field that you like? Uh, I can tell you what I don't like. Okay, well, let's go there first. Okay, so, <laughs> so we rebuilt the team, as you know, in the off-season. And it frequently, and shockingly enough, in our case, it's proven true, takes a while for a new team to gel, to get used to playing with each other, to, to rely on each other in order to play at a high level. And this team just hasn't gelled quite yet. Uh, it doesn't help, of course, our quarterback injury uh, issues. Uh, but, um, but yeah, as, as, as Coach Orlando will tell you, it, it's next man up. Our, our backup quarterbacks are supposed to be ready to play. 
And this team will come together. It's a long season, as the coaches will tell you. Uh, so there's no reason we can't be in the game, but I'd love to see them play for each other even harder than they currently are. And I know they care, uh, but um, we'll see. We'll see. It'll be an adventure. There are 10 games to go, so there's a long, There's more yeah. than half the season still to go. Yeah. How cool would it be to again see Hamilton play in the Grey Cup in Hamilton that, that we saw a couple of years ago? Oh, that's, that's the mission. There is nothing short of that. We have... Our coaches and our players are, are perfectly focused on that outcome. Only as I keep telling them, I don't want them in the Grey Cup if they're not going to win. <laughs> it's time that they win this Grey Cup yeah. for themselves and for the city of Hamilton. Well, I uh, congratulate you on the plans and good luck in the future. I know there's many more announcements to come. Thanks for the time. Thank you so much, Rick. A pleasure to catch up with you. Should be a phenomenal Grey Cup Festival. Lots of details on the Ticats website, ticats.ca, and more announcements to come, including the halftime show. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. What a wonderful, wonderful experience at the Art Gallery of Hamilton. Myself and, well, dozens of other people, many of them, I think all of them, Ticats fans, well, maybe not one. I'll tell you that. I'll, I'll tell you why in a reason. Uh, I went to the art gallery yesterday and what was a wonderfully coordinated event to preview the 110th Grey Cup Festival. And as you know, for those of you who have been to Grey Cups or Grey Cup Festivals in the past, there's a lot that goes into putting on this whole experience. It's more than just the game. It's the celebration of the game. It's the celebration of... Uh, being a CFL fan and being a Canadian. So whether you're visiting Tigertown or the Spirit of Edmonton uh, or, or Ryderville, any of the team parties, or just being in on some of the concerts or a lot of the fun that's going to be happening in Hamilton, it's really exciting. And getting all the details was really exciting. So I had the chance to talk to a number of individuals, including, and you'll hear from him in just a couple of minutes, the mayor of Niagara Falls, Jim Diodati, but we'll start with my conversation with Matt Affinick. Matt is the president and CEO of the Hamilton Sports Group, the, the conglomerate that owns the Hamilton Tiger Cats, and we talked about all the plans that were unfolded yesterday. Phenomenal plans in terms of Grey Cup 110 Festival, lots to announce. What, what sticks out to you as some of the more exciting things that uh, Hamilton and, and really CFL fans from coast to coast are going to experience? Well, I'd say two things. One is the CFL traditions done in a Hamilton way, team parties, alumni functions, all happening in a, in a really walkable downtown core footprint here, uh, and doing them in some very unique Hamilton venues like the Armory, right, James Street North. Um, the other thing I'm really, we're really excited about is just our ability to work with established people and events in the city of Hamilton that have nothing to do with football. Super crawl around the bay, you know, the YWCA, uh, the school board amongst many others, Santa Claus Parade, mm -hmm. that saw the vision to, hey, wait a second, why don't we take that expertise and bring it into the Grey Cup environment, right? Mm -hmm. And put a Grey Cup and CFL spin and feel on. So like in the Santa Claus Parade, you're going to see the cup coming through. You're going to see cheerleaders and alumni walking down the street. So that integration with established things in the community is something we're really proud we're able to get done. And I think we'll bring more people in because at the end of the day, football fans are probably going to be here the larger members of this community that we need to support this event, they might just be interested in coming out for the Santa Claus mm -hmm. Parade. So we think that's great too. When you're presenting this to the CFL, I would imagine that Commissioner Ambrosi, all, all the higher-ups in the league are thinking, wow, this is a great idea and this could be a, a precedent-setting kind of festival to, to copy everywhere else. 
Yeah, I, I, I hope so. And we'll, we'll see how this uh, all comes together in November. We're confident uh, it's going to be very successful. But, you know, I think organizationally, Rick, the way we think about things is a strength is knowing um, you, know, you can learn lots of great things from other people. And when you look around some of the groups that we've brought in, all of whom were in the room today represented, like they're great at what they do and they're great at what they do here in Hamilton. So we'd be foolish if there was a shared will to get them involved. Why wouldn't we get them involved? So we're, we're, we're quite pr- proud of that. Speaking of learning, what did you learn from the 2021 Grey Cup, which was, as we know, you know, COVID impacted, yeah. that you're implementing here or maybe even excluding from this one? That's a great question. Um, you know, I think the thing that we learned for 2021 is how much the stadium experience is such a vital part of the game and the atmosphere. And that was one of the most electric things I've ever been a part of in in 2021 but what it didn't have is some of that stadium enhancement that we've announced and shown that will be there and be in place uh, for for 2023 so I think applying you know COVID limited our ability to do that obviously in 21 but our ability to do that here in 2023 is probably a piece of this that I think if you compare the two events and they're dramatically as you saw today dramatically different events um, but it's just what that stadium is going to look like on game day and what the city is going to feel like um, you know, Grey Cup week, because I, I, we mentioned it here today, and just one little nuance is the competing teams are actually now coming into market on Mondays. They used to come in on Tuesdays, but they're now coming in on Mondays because playoff games before the Grey Cup are played on Saturdays. So that allows us, so the competing teams now come in Monday, so Grey Cup week starts Monday, and, you know, it builds over the course of the week and culminates really Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, but you're going to see Grey Cup activity in the market from Monday onwards that just didn't happen in 2021. So uh, that's, that's what we're quite excited about. A lot of fans, football and non-football fans, wondering about the halftime show. When can we expect an announcement on that? Yeah, so as we said today, I think the halftime show is part of our overall entertainment package um, relative to the concerts at First Ontario Centre, what we're doing down in Niagara Falls, and obviously part of halftime as well. So at the end of the day, halftime is controlled by the Canadian Football League, not by us as as the organizers, but like everything, we work in close concert with them. So I think we're thinking about this as the presentation of Grey Cup entertainment, including the halftime show, and you can look forward to seeing that over the course of the next couple of weeks. All right, exciting plans, and uh, congratulations. Looking forward to seeing everything. Amazing. Always appreciate your time, Rick. Great uh, plan laid out by Matt Affinek, the president and CEO of the Hamilton Sports Group. And there was a very interesting wrinkle in that involving Niagara Falls. Here's my discussion yesterday with Mayor Jim Diodati. A little bit of a surprise today that Niagara Falls was included in the Grey Cup uh, party, the Grey Cup Festival. How did this all come about? Well, we were uh, reached out by the uh, Minister of Tourism along with the CFL folks and they said we're looking at growing the Grey Cup want to know if Niagara Falls wants to participate. And of course, we jumped right on board. And and still, I mean, the events in Hamilton, it's still going to be all, as I said earlier, the meat and the potatoes are going to be in Hamilton. The dessert is going to be in Niagara Falls along with some ice wine. And we know that by bringing the brand of Niagara Falls to the table, it just grows the event, makes it more regional, connects Niagara Falls to the hammer, and I think it'll draw more people to travel here from the outskirts of the country to want to come here and maybe extend their visit. Take in Niagara Falls, take in Hamilton, take in the Grey Cup. Another big part of it is the free shuttle service. You don't have to worry about driving or getting between the two cities. How big of a factor was that in saying, this is going to work for Niagara Falls? Well, that was really key because, you know, people come here, especially if you're traveling from elsewhere, you don't want to have to rent a car or worry about logistics. In this way, if you do want to take in Niagara Falls, it's one more reason to come to the Grey Cup. Well, we're down there, let's take in the falls. So they may stay here, nice thing they can drink, they don't have to worry about driving. 
they can eat. They're going to get their own chauffeured shuttle right to the stadium, taking all the amazing festivities in Hamilton. And I'm going to tell you, in my opinion, I was at the 100th, and that was a big event in Toronto. I think this one may be the biggest event the Grey Cup has ever had. Well, you mentioned that because there's another new wrinkle, because there's a lot of new wrinkles, but the <laughs> CFL Awards going to be in Niagara Falls at Fallsview Casino. That, that sounds like exciting, and it hasn't already happened yet. Yeah, so we're working on uh, some announcements. We want to save some of the announcements as we get closer. My suggestion is everybody should get their tickets now because when they find out after the fact who the entertainment's going to be, they're going to wish they had. So all we want to do is draw more attention, draw more excitement, put more eyes on it, and we're going to get more bums in the seats, more people to the event, and I think we're just going to elevate it, take it to a whole new level. I really appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thank you. That is Niagara Falls Mayor Jim Diodati and Matt Affinick from the Hamilton Sports Group. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Oh, that bell will be tolling very, very soon for tens of thousands of kids in the province of Ontario, really across the country. Because back to school, oh, the three words that I detested as a child. Back to school is now on the tongues, on the minds of uh, many parents and, yes, some kids as well. And with the start of this new school year coming up, we all know that we have to do some back-to-school shopping. Well, at least some of you, if you're, if you're in the grandparent category, it might not be the top of your priority list. You might, get, you might get one or two special things for your grandkid to enjoy the school year, maybe chip in with a backpack or whatever the case is. The parents... They're looking around thinking, eh, inflation is where it is. We got to put food on the table. Back to school is coming at a, at a pretty bad time with the inflation rate where it is. I mean, last summer was, was even worse with the inflation where it was. But now, with everything compounded over the last year, it is tough. Well, we have some help for you. And in particular, personal finance expert Barry Choi has some help for you with some awesome tips coming up here on Good Morning Hamilton. Barry, welcome to the show. How are you? Good to have me back. Good morning. How are you? I am good. I am glad, however, that I'm not doing any back-to-school <laughs> shopping at this point. My kids are both out of school, and, well, I don't I don't have to go to those back-to-school sales, but many parents do. What's your advice for them this summer? You know what? I'm already jealous of you. My daughter's going to grade one. I was just in the U.S., <laughs> and I couldn't believe how much back-to-school shopping I had to do, but... The first tip I have for parents is to check what you have at home first. Uh, we're all guilty of this. I'll even admit, I still have printer paper from when I was in high school. And that was more than 20 years ago. <laughs> I don't know why I thought I needed you know, 3,000 sheets of printer paper when I was in grade 12. But I'm literally still going through that stack these days. So before you go out to go back to school shopping, do an inventory at home. And double check your kids because, you know, kids will often be like, oh, I don't have that. I need it. And then you look in the corner of the room and they actually do have it. So do an inventory first more than anything else. Well, and those, uh, I mean, if you already have it, you you don't need it. But here's where the problem, and you're going to find this out with your daughter is, Uh-oh. they <laughs> o- they always want the newest thing. So the newest binder, the newest backpack, the newest whatever is out there. And there's, <laughs> there's a lot of pressure on parents. You know what? Uh, now that you've said it, I remember high school. I don't know if you're of a certain vintage, five-star first gear. Oh, yeah. Uh, the note totes, right? Yeah. I don't know what brands are out, but you know what? You're right. You know, even my daughter, she's going to grade one. She already wanted a certain brand of backpack. But I'll say this, you know, if they want certain things, at least make a list, right? Because at least you know what you want. So if, if your, your child wants to spend a little bit more on one item, then you know what? 
go for it. But at the same time, I think we need to teach them a little bit of budgeting at the same time. You can have that more expensive item, but then we're going to have to cut back on certain items. So you, you might want to give them that little budget and be like, this is how much you have to work with total. So where do you want to go with this? This is a great opportunity to teach young children, especially financial literacy, right? Make a budget. All right, if you want to spend X amount of dollars on this, we're, we're going to have to not spend as much on that. And that really teaches them about budgeting and about how this all works. You know, regardless of how old your kids, whether they're going to grade one, high school, university, that budgeting lesson is so important because it's going to affect us all throughout life. You know, you mentioned through that start of this conversation, how inflation has affected parents. So obviously parents are already making adjustments to their monthly budget. So it's a good opportunity to teach their kids at the same time how budgeting works. And you know what, at the same time, maybe it's also a good opportunity to teach kids that if they want something, they got to save money for it. So if you want that fancy backpack, uh, my daughter who's six, it's time to get a job. <laughs> Absolutely. Barry Choi is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Barry is a personal finance expert and we're talking about back-to-school shopping and how you can save a little bit of coin while doing so. What is the biggest mistake that parents make? Is it not checking what they already have, or is it just overspending on things that they probably don't have to? I think a lot, it's a combination of everything. You know, you you don't see what you have, and you feel that pure pressure. You know, this is the time of the year you go into the stores, and back to school is in your face, all over the place. And your kids are telling you, "I need this, I need that." Uh, if you haven't prepared whatsoever, you, you could be spending uh, a lot more money. And even sometimes something simple not price comparing. You know, there's so many deal apps these days that you can quickly check online or even on your mobile device to see what's on sale, where it's on sale. So, so it requires just a little bit of planning. So, so that's why I would say the biggest mistake is just not planning. And that applies to anything in life when you think about it. I know you said you had about 30,000 or 3,000 printing papers <laughs> still, uh, you know, from your high school days. Is buying in bulk a smart decision for back to school? <laughs> You know, it can be a, a good thing. It depends on, on obviously things like how many children do you have? If sometimes if you're friends with your neighbors or people in your building, uh, it can be beneficial for you to say, hey, let's go to Costco. There's a good deal on this because when you actually look at the price of bulk buying, it can be like 25, 50% cheaper than the regular retail store. So I think there's a lot of different options available out there, but obviously you got to price things out per unit to see if it's worthwhile and you need to factor in your time. What about credit card reward programs? Is that uh, rewarding for parents? Should they be dipping into that for back to school or should they save that for another day? I would say rewards programs and cashback credit cards are an aspect that's been completely changing over the years because there's just more rewards available. For example, if you have a cashback credit card and you're shopping anywhere, if you're paying with that credit card, you'll earn cashback. So, you know, that might be anywhere from 1% to 5% back, and that's money back in your pocket. And a lot of loyalty programs are tied to a specific store. So if you're signed up for the loyalty program that belongs to the store and you have a co-branded credit card, you can almost double dip on the points depending on the program or the credit card. Uh, so it may not seem like a lot of money, but think about it. Is you're not just shopping through back to school. If you're using those credit cards throughout the year, the cashback you earn can be used for back to school shopping. So it's just another benefit or another way you can use to save. I know we've talked a lot about school supplies, but there's also for many kids back to school clothes that they want. <laughs> and, and all these rules apply for that too, right? You know what? Back to school clothing shopping is one of those things that 
you should feel guilty about it, right? Uh, <laughs> kids love getting new outfits when they go back to school, but I'll say this. There's no reason you to replace their entire wardrobe come August and September, right? If you want to get a one or two new outfits, that's more than enough because, you know, again, using my own kid as an example, she's got more clothes than I have, right? Oh, yeah, I believe it. So you got to kind of think about how much clothes do my kids need? Or more importantly, can you spread those purchases out throughout the year? Because, you know, the best time to, to shop for back to school is arguably when school has already started because there's even more sales. Yeah, I had the luxury, uh, you know, quote unquote luxury of uh, my kids having school uniforms. So they they <laughs> had to dress up how they uh, how the school expected them to be. But, yeah, I always reminded them that it's not back to school fashion show. It's just back to school, period. Uh, very- <laughs> I like back to school fashion show. I'll use that on my daughter. <laughs> there you go. Barry, appreciate the time and uh, best of luck with your back to school shopping. Thank you. Anytime. Barry Choi is a personal finance expert so giving us some tips and advice on how you can save a few bucks while you're shopping back for school. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.